production and distribution of City Club Forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. Today is Wednesday, March 22nd. I'm Lita Obertaz, Senior Vice President for Advancement at the Cleveland Foundation, and a member of the City Club Board of Directors. I am pleased to introduce our speakers today, Robin Steinberg, founder of The Bail Project, and David Gasper, The Bail Project's incoming CEO. And we have a great moderator today, Aisha Bell Hardaway. She's Associate Professor of Law at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. Professor Hardaway is a former Assistant Cuyahoga County Prosecutor and has been involved in monitoring the Cleveland Police Consent Decree for many years. Robin Steinberg first spoke at the City Club in 2020 during one of our virtual Friday forums. She told the Bail Project story then, just as the program was beginning in Cuyahoga County. The idea is straightforward, a revolving fund to pay bail for those charged with nonviolent offenses who present low risk of fleeing. For those who are charged with a crime but don't have the ability to pay the bail bond, this allows them to return to their families, their jobs, and their livelihoods, just like any wealthy person. Over the past two decades, the use of cash bail has grown substantially. At the same time, bail amounts have also risen. This has led to an increase in the number of people who are unable to make bail. According to a report issued last year from the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, more than 60% of defendants are detained pre-trial because they cannot afford to post bail. Those numbers are higher for women and people of color. America's cash bail system is based on the idea that money is necessary to ensure that a person returns to court but the Bail Project is challenging this idea. The Bail Project works with community partners in cities across the country to provide free bail assistance to low-income people. In August 2019, the Bail Project opened a site in Cleveland. The organization has secured release for nearly 1,000 people in Northeast Ohio and County. If you have a question for our guests, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330 5415794. You can also tweet your question at the City Club. And City Club staff will work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club. To Robin and to David for coming here, uh, joining us in Cleveland uh, to talk about this really important uh, uh, component topic of the criminal legal system. So thank you for being here with us. I've been a long time uh, admirer of your work, Robin, and definitely appreciate the impact that uh, the Bail Project has had on people living here uh, in, in Cleveland. So thank you. Um, Robin, let me start with you. Can you sure. tell us uh, how cash bail works, uh, why it exists, and what the problems are that come with it? Sure. We could talk about that for days, but I'll try to keep it short. Um, so for those of you that don't know, right, bail is an amount of money, quite literally, that a judge determines somebody has to pay to secure their freedom 
um, while their case is pending in the system. What's important to know about that is that cash bail gets set at the beginning of a case when somebody is cloaked in the presumption of innocence before we know what the evidence looks like, right? And it, is meant, it was meant historically to secure somebody's return to courts. So the theory was if we put money as the thing somebody has to put up, right, it will incentivize somebody to come back to court for each of their court appearances because at the end of the case, if you make all your court appearances, money comes back to you. So the theory was that was the incentive that would make people come back to court. Um, the problem with cash bail is, um, well, there are many problems with it, but I can start by saying it's unnecessary. So one of the things that five years uh, the bail project um, has been able to amass is a national database that's proven that when somebody has no financial interest in the bail money, meaning we post the bail with donated dollars, um, people come back to a minimum of 92% of their court appearances. Here, um, the numbers are actually 94%. Um, of court appearances people make. So money, money never had anything to do with it. So, so cash bail is, first of all, unnecessary. It's also unfair. It creates a two-tier system of justice, one for people with money and one for people without. So that money should never be what determines who's free and who's not. Um, third, it's unjust. Right? It is cash bail is a driver of mass incarceration in this country, and it is the driver of racial disparities in this country. Um, and so if you believe that we need to march back mass incarceration and you believe that racial equity is critical to our democracy and who we are, then cash bail can't exist. Um, and finally, it doesn't do what people think it does. It's, not, it's never been intended to be a conversation about public safety. Money doesn't buy you safety. We can have a conversation about what might, but it's certainly not cash bail. So those are some of the problems with it. No, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. David, if I could, um, um, if you could help us to understand on an individual level, uh, contextualize this a bit there. Uh, if you can't pay cash bail uh, and you find yourself locked in jail pre-trial, pre mm -hmm. right, what harms are likely to be caused uh, in that individual's life um, as a result? And how many people do we know are affected um, by the pre-trial um, um, detention system each year? Yeah, thank you. I think what's important to frame that particular question is realizing people's real ability to pay bail. Um, an article was released last year that stated six out of 10 Americans don't even have the ability to cover a $500 emergency. The other four, 20% of them would have to rely on a credit card in order to cover that $500 emergency. So when you process that and you say that there's over 500,000 people each and every day across America that are stuck in jail, we have to question, what is the real harm of bail? Here in Cuyahoga County, the average bail is less than $850 for the 1,000 people that we've covered bail for. Stop and think about that. 1,000 people we had to assist to secure their freedom with an average bail of $850. Now when we think about that individual that doesn't even have the ability to secure their own freedom, we also have to look at their lives. These are people that are living paycheck to paycheck, already struggling, already trying to figure out how they're going to keep the lights on and the rent paid. And with each and every passing day, they're at risk or jeopardy of losing their employment. They're at risk and jeopardy of losing their housing, not only for themselves, but for their families not being able to pay their car note, not being able to pay the next doctor bill. 
when a small amount of money can rapidly deteriorate somebody's life in a matter of days or weeks, that's something that we need to pay attention to. I firsthand, at the age of nine or 10 years old, had my stepfather get arrested. He wasn't in jail, but maybe a week to two weeks at the most. But it was enough for him to lose his job. Yeah. And as happy as we were to have him home, he came home just in time to see us struggling to put food on the table. He came home just in time to be able to receive the eviction notice that got us kicked out of our apartment. He came home in just enough time to see the lives of his family torn apart that pushed him deeper into depression and his addiction that got him arrested in the first place. So when we talk about the harms that come, they don't just stop the day that people get out of jail. They're perpetual. Whatever harms that were incurred, the loss of employment, the potential loss of children, the potential loss of housing, all those things don't just stop because somebody got out of jail. So. Yeah, no, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, I know that there are many of us in this room who can identify with that reality that you've shared. Um, Robin, uh, if I could, one of the many, uh, I think you're really good at um, putting words to this uh, and helping uh, it, things resonate. Uh, one of the many impactful things that you've said is freedom should be free, mm -hmm. right? But in addition to the things that you've said, you've obviously put action behind your words, right? Uh, you co-founded the first of its kind revolving bail fund in 2005, right, uh, in the South Bronx. And then in the fall of 2017, uh, you started the bail project. Uh, why did you start these nonprofit organizations and what did you do, what were you hoping to accomplish? Sure. So. Um you know, I spent most of my career as a public defender, um, and I did that in New York City, in the South Bronx particularly. And I stood next to my clients day in and day out and watched them being hauled off to Rikers Island because they didn't have $500 or $1,000 or $1,500 in their bank account. And frankly, it just made my blood boil. Mm -hmm. um, and it was very far from what I believed when I was a young public defender that I was walking into, which was a system based on equal justice under the law, where people were treated with dignity, don't laugh, people were treated with dignity and respect. Um, those are the ideas I had when I went to law school and the ideas I had when I became a young public defender and I was shocked to see the difference that how much money you had made in the system and yeah. for your case and for your life. Um, and so I knew that people had, um, over time, people had sort of bonded together and put together money for their loved ones, right? That is as old as, you know, any story about our criminal legal system. Um, and sometimes in history, there have been political movements where organizations have put together money to have a bail fund to bail people out, whether that was during the civil rights movement or whether that was actually unionization mm -hmm. um, movements, that, that those things had existed and the communities and churches and family had put together money for their loved ones forever. But what hadn't been tested was, what if you took money from complete strangers and you created a fund that could revolve? Um, what would happen, right? Would people come back to court, right? Because it's one thing when your family or your loved ones or your community bails you out, you feel like you have some connection. It's another thing to test on a, on a sort of broader basis well, is it really money that makes people come back to court? It has some intuitive sense to us, right? It kind of makes sense like, well, sure, money would make me, I don't want to lose my money. But nobody had really tested it at scale. And so in 2005, uh, my husband and I actually co-founded something called the Bronx Freedom Fund. Mm -hmm. And we began to bail out clients in the South Bronx um, who were being held in a cash bail. And we began to collect the data. And we ran that fund, that revolving fund. And again, it revolves because money comes back at the end. So we knew if we get it right, and people come back to court, the money will continually come into the fund and we can bail more people out. 
If it turns out, though, that the theory that cash is what makes people come back, and nobody has an incentive to come back anymore, we're going to lose all the money in the fund, that was a gamble we were willing to take. And frankly, I think it was, you know, a lot of people were betting that we were going to lose all the money very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and what we learned very, very quickly was money had nothing to do with it. And that 95% of our clients came back to court for all of their appearances. When they didn't come back, it was almost because a life circumstance came up, not because they were attempting to evade yeah. um, the system anyway. And so having done that for 10 years, what we realized was not only would people come back if they had no skin in the game financially at all, so cash bail, it's a myth. The other thing that we saw, which was staggering even to me as a, as a public defender who's in the system every single day, was that over half the people's cases got dismissed entirely. Mm -hmm. And that told me everything I needed to know that I knew intuitively but needed to prove about the over-incarceration, yeah. over-policing in communities of color, and particularly black and brown low-income communities in New York City and across the country, and that those folks never should have been in the system to begin with. So we saw half the cases getting dismissed when we paid bail. 95% of people came back. Um, and then once you have a little thing like that where you realize, wow, you know, that is incredible, we need to really be thinking about what are we doing about our cash bail system is there a way to scale this across the country? And will the data prove the same thing? We didn't know that either. Mm -hmm. um, so in 2017, we launched the Bail Project, which was really intended to ask the same questions at the national level. Um, and we opened sites in all different places, some blue states, red states, rural, city, and really tried to get a national portfolio about cash bail and its impact. Um, and what we learned was it looks very much like it did in the South Bronx in 2005. Uh, people's cases get dismissed in large numbers. Yeah. People come back to court almost all the time. Yeah. Um, when they're out and they're fighting their case, they get better case dispositions that very rarely involve more incarceration. Um, and so, you know, we began to really understand that this was a national problem. Um, and, you know, that first Bronx Freedom Fund was a great um, test of, of the question. And the Bail Project's work has been able to take that to the national level. So that's really what it was about. Yeah. I really appreciate you um, illuminating, calling out, uh, pulling out for us the way in which pretrial detention places its thumb on the scale of our conviction rates um, and how without pretrial detention you don't have so many cases pleading out uh, without really a fair adjudication of whether or not a person actually is innocent or guilty. Um, so um, this is, you started this in 2017, right? Uh, David, uh, you, we now know that the Bail Project in a short period of time has expanded to 30 sites across the country. Uh, that it... Absolutely, absolutely worth applauding, especially you did it during the midst of a pandemic. Um, <laughs> Um, 30 sites across the country. You've bailed out over 28,000 people. Could you help us understand exactly how uh, each site works? What's the model that your sites across the country are, are operating under? Uh, so that we have some more idea about that. Absolutely. Uh, so one of the things that was always attractive to me, even prior to joining the Bell Project, was that the people that work at the sites are actually from those cities. They're from those neighborhoods, those communities. The people that are here are ones that are actually living here, eating here, shopping here, entertaining themselves and their families here, raising their children here. Um, and as part of our interview process, we also want to make sure that they have a vested interest 
in the improvement of their communities. So when we're talking to individuals that we hire for our team, we know that they're already active. They're already out there doing this good work, regardless if there's a paycheck associated with it or not. Um, and so I'm actually really happy to say that um, I was one of the founding uh, team members that started the Cleveland Bell Project. Um, I actually had an opportunity to interview one of our team members that is still here today, Kareem. Um, so if anybody... So if anybody wants to um, have a problem with Kareem, it really is my fault. So yeah, take that up <laughs> Now, Kareem is great. Um, but David and Kareem um, are also very local and native to this particular city, and they have a vested interest in improving their communities. Um, so that's just a starting point that I've always been attracted to and always had a strong value for. Um, but these are also individuals that not only connect with the people that they're serving, but they're connecting with the service providers. They're connecting with the system players that have a role in how we can secure their freedom in the best way possible. And so our practice is not just to come in as outsiders and say, hey, we think that we know best. We come in and we hire local and we hire to educate. We, not just ourselves, but to educate those that we work with. And we're always forever looking for opportunities on how to improve the communities and the environments in which each and every location operates. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about Cleveland and, and, and the numbers here? Uh, how's the work going? What have we learned? Uh, are there other similar results? Are the results here similar to those that you've seen in other cities? Yeah, so I, I would start by saying it takes on average eight days for us to be able to secure somebody's release. Mm, cool. That is far above our national average. That's a long time. And so that right there, and when I say above, I mean like we're actually getting people out very quickly. Okay. Um, and I want to give credit to our local team for jumping on those referrals and making sure that the work is being done. But I also want to give credit to the clerk's office. I want to give credit to the jail administration and to the public defenders mm -hmm. because without their partnership, Yeah. Because without their partnership, we would not be able to secure the release of individuals that quickly. Now, what I will say with that is that we also know that in Cleveland, very specifically Cuyahoga County, that the case duration is four months. So when you stop and you think that we're getting people out in eight days and they have the potential to remain in custody up to four months, that is staggering. Mm -hmm. And when you stop to think that on top of that, 80% of the individuals that we've bailed out, out of approaching 1,000 people, 80% of them, almost 800 people, are not required to serve one additional day in jail. Hmm. So had we not intervened at the time that we did, they would have remained in custody for approximately four months, and each and every one of those days would have been completely unnecessary. What we also know is that up to date, with the numbers that we have for the 1,000 people that, that we're approaching, we have saved Cuyahoga County almost 100,000 days of incarceration. We have saved human lives from enduring that particular hardship. And that also comes at a cost savings of $7.5 million. Yeah. And I want to highlight something um, that Robin said earlier about dismissal rates. The dismissal rate here in Cuyahoga County is 
And when you take that into consideration that we're approaching 1,000 people, that means that over 200 people should have never been in custody in the first place. That's 200 lives. And put that in context, we're not touching everybody. That's right. So how many other lives are currently sitting in custody unnecessarily? And out of that 80% that we know never had to serve an additional day in jail, how many more people are still sitting in jail unnecessarily? The savings, the hardship, and the cost and the impact on human lives is staggering. Thank you so much for contextualizing all of that. I, you know, as somebody who um, has visited the jail for clients, right, uh, and has that urgency in me, any day is too long, right? But to understand that eight days is so much better than the four months and, and what the national average is, is important. And so I'm glad to know that we're on the right side of that data here in Cleveland. Um, Robert, I, I, I wanted to ask a little bit uh, about, about the purposes of cash bail. So we know that it's not essential to make sure that people return back uh, to court. Uh, but of course, uh, at least uh, based on what we hear in the media and maybe what others um, might be led to believe, right, there's a public safety issue here. There's an argument, right, that this is about public safety and not just about making sure that people come back to court. I would love for you to share with us what your thoughts are on, on the public safety argument. Sure. So um, cash is a completely inappropriate proxy for public safety. I mean, we can start there, right? There's nothing to do with it. And the reason there's nothing to do with it is if you have cash bail, you have two people charged with exactly the same thing and exactly a, a similar profile of somebody who may actually pose a threat to somebody in the community um, on either front. Somebody who is wealthy is going to get out, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, not, it's never been about that. It's being used as a proxy, I think, by judges and people in the system um, who believe that if they release this person, there may be harm to somebody in the community. And so cash has become a proxy for that conversation. Really what we need to do is eliminate cash and have that conversation, yeah. right? Have a conversation about, you know, what do we mean when we say public safety? Yeah. Um, what do we mean when we refer to somebody as dangerousness and recognize the historical context of, of that kind of labeling um, and, and where race and uh, dangerousness collide mm. in a toxic cocktail of, mm. of systemic racism and to really think seriously about that. But when we talk about public safety, and this is really going back to what David's saying, you know, part of the conversation, of course nobody wants somebody to come out of jail and harm somebody in the community. Of course, everybody wants to live in safe communities. Nobody wants that to happen. We also need to talk, though, on the other side of this about public safety also involves the mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and neighbors yeah. and friends who are locked in those jail cells who we know on a daily basis are being subjected to violence and harm and trauma that will have irreparable damage, right? It is not a benign act to hold somebody in a jail cell. So when we talk about public safety, I like to you know, remind people that we're talking about you know, two and a half million people every year who are going through our system who are being you know, in, impacted by cash bail. Their public safety matters as well. And so we really need to think about how do we balance those things and create a system where if we're going to hold somebody, I mean, holding somebody pre-trial before conviction in a jail cell should always be the exception. Yeah. It should be the very rare exception, right? And your Ohio Supreme Court has articulated that. The Supreme Court articulates that it should be the exception, not the rule. Unfortunately, it's become the norm and the rule. So we need to reverse that, right? When I think about creating a better system that really thinks about public safety, everybody's public safety, um, I think about the presumption ought to be release, 
right? And if that presumption is going to be overcome by the prosecutor, that should be done in a transparent, evidence-based way in an open courtroom, right, where there is an actual proceeding and procedural protections that wrap around the accused who has a lawyer to challenge the idea that somebody might pose a risk if they're released. And if after that process happens, a judge determines that that is the case, then that person would be held in pretrial, not because they don't have enough money in their bank account, but because we have afforded them due process and equal protection under the law and had an actual process that's transparent, not an algorithm, yeah. not fear, yeah. right? Not the things that we know drive you know, cash bail being set and holding people in jail cells, but a real system. So it really is gonna require us to reimagine an entirely different way of thinking about pretrial justice and presume that people should be released um, unless there's very, very, very compelling evidence to the contrary. Yeah. Um, that's the only thing that's also consistent with the presumption of innocence. Yeah. You know, if everybody is supposed to be presumed innocent before evidence has been introduced when you're arrested, and we know lots of people in the system shouldn't have been there to begin with for all the reasons we've described the data, right, then our system ought to reflect that, which is the presumption should be released as well. Yeah. Right. Um, I was already convinced before I got here, but I, but I hope our audience understands that, that, that cash bail is unnecessary, unfair, and unjust. Uh, I wonder, though, then, what your thoughts are, Robin, about how or why, how or why it continues to exist. Why is, why is it so, still so prevalent? So, you know, I, I, you know, when I think about who opposes um, eliminating cash bail, I think about it in different ways. I think about there's a large um, segment of the public that don't really understand cash bail, mm -hmm. how it operates, why it's unnecessary, unfair, and unjust. And I really do believe if we had a good public education campaign and people genuinely understood that it is a driver of mass incarceration, a driver of jail growth, and a driver of racial disparities in our system, people would actually begin to see it differently. So there's a large number of people that just don't know yet. And we have an obligation and a responsibility to continue to educate people about that, right? Those of you in this room clearly, right, can go out into the world and, and share this information with people. Then there, frankly, there are people that oppose bail reform and eliminating cash bail because they have a vested interest in doing so, right? You have a multi-billion dollar bail bond industry that profits, yeah. right, off the backs of desperate families who will pay them a fee to get their loved one out of jail. Um, and that is a very powerful industry that, you know, continues to have its hold on systems across this country. Um, and so that's another reason I think that opposition happens. Um, and, you know, then there's the fear, Right? Yeah. There, there is um, the sort of fear-mongering that goes on by those who want to keep the system the way it is. Um, and when you, know, you scare people enough, uh, they'll justify doing almost anything. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think about really doing the public education campaign is going to be critically important if we're going to get over the narratives of fear that are being perpetuated out there in the world by people with a financial interest in keeping cash bail where it is. Yeah, yeah. David, I would love if you would share with us a bit about the solutions that you propose. And I don't know if as a part of the solutions, you could also help us understand more about the Bail Project's community release with support model uh, um, and, and, and share with us what you all do in that space. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'll take that in reverse. Okay. Um, so our, our community release with support model is what we do after we help somebody secure their freedom. Uh, so that is the court reminders, the transportation assistance, the connection to the community resource providers that already exist. Um, so these aren't things that we're creating or you know, bringing along with us. 
we're just tapping into what already exists in the community. Um, and so that really is the, the backbone and the foundation. But honestly, what most people value most about our community release for support model is that they have somebody who's standing by their side that believes in them as much as they believe in themselves. Mm -hmm. Belief goes a long way. When you have somebody telling you this is what you have to do because I don't believe in you, that's a different thing to accept as an individual. Yeah. That is hard to process. That is hard to get behind and feel motivated. But when you have somebody saying, I believe in you, I believe in your future, and here are some opportunities to help you get where you said you wanted to be. Because when we're connecting with our clients, we're not telling them what we think they need. We're asking them what they have already identified for themselves would be helpful. Yeah. And being able to take that approach, it absolutely makes a difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, with the first part of that, um, you know, solutions come in different ways, shapes, forms, sizes. Um, but to generalize them, you have the local level change. You have statewide, and then you have national. It's that local change that means everything. Mm -hmm. If anything, or if nothing but that changes, what people do in each and every day that they come to work will make a difference in people's lives. And I will say that there's been bail reform across the nation, but there's one area that I want to highlight, and that is Detroit. Okay. They had a lawsuit and a settlement that now requires their judges to have to state on record the person's ability to afford their bail. Mm. Now stop and think about that. Mm -hmm. I just said in Cuyahoga County, $850 will deny you your freedom. So now that a judge has to actually identify a person's ability to pay, now they can set bond appropriate to their situation. Second and most important, if somebody is going to be detained the judge on record has to state the why. Mm -hmm. As Robin just outlined, let's have a process that actually can be evaluated and reviewed so that we don't have the systemic challenges that we've had when it comes to certain populations. So that we don't have the systemic challenges that we've experienced and that we still see to this day that don't allow for equality to actually exist in our system. And so doing those two things those are local level changes. Those don't have to come from the state senate. They don't have to be handed down. They don't have to you know, be voted. Like This is just a practice of common sense. And when we talk about public safety, instead of just assigning a dollar value and hoping that that is going to be yeah. enough, how about we actually look at the facts? How about we look at the details? And now we make an educated choice to detain somebody because we have a real, true, substantiated belief that they would cause harm. Yeah. Yeah, it's powerful. And I know I'm running out of time. I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. Um, <laughs> do I have to go to questions now, or do I? You want me to go to questions now? I, yeah, because I know how to follow instructions. I will go to questions now. <laughs> We're about to begin the audience q and I'm Aisha Bell Hardaway at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. And I've, I've been joined, as you all have just heard, this beautiful discussion with Robin Steinberg and David Gaspar at the Bail Project. Uh, we welcome questions from everyone, city club members, guests, students, and those uh, joining us via live stream at cityclub.org. If you'd like to tweet a question to our speakers, uh, please tweet it at the city club. You can also text it to 330-541-5794. 
that's 330-541-5794. And the City Club staff will try to work it into our program. Uh, may we have the first question, please? Yes, hi. Uh, my question is, um, how do we convince Cuyahoga County that the bail project has worked, has shown that we don't need to charge cash bail to people, they will return, and we need to provide supports. We have all the evidence. How can we convince the court system that this is what we should do? <laughs> I mean, look, you know, I don't have an answer to that. I, I will say this, change is really hard, and systems don't go down without a fight. And so you just have to expect that that's going to be part of this process, right? But it's going to happen while we continue the work, we continue to collect the data, we share that information. Right? I think it's really important that we continue to share that information with justice and policy, you know, justice policymakers and judges and, and people in the system. And then, honestly, if you're not driven by the justice of it all, if you're not driven by the idea that we need to stop mass incarceration, if you're not driven by the fact that you want racial justice in this country, people should be driven by the cost. Yeah. Right? And whatever drives somebody, right? And so for some people we talk to, it's going to be about the dollars and cents, right? It is, it is an enormous cost to taxpayers um, to hold people in jail pretrial when we have a model that we know works, right? And, and we have proven data, not just here in Cleveland, not just in Ohio, but nationally, that shows that people will return to court um, with no negative impact on public safety at all. And that's really the key point. I mean, I think one of the other things we have to really get under is the narrative about rising crime rates and somehow connecting that to bail reform or even criminal justice reform is just, again, another myth. Um, and it's being perpetuated by people that want to, you know, stop progress, halt, you know, criminal justice reform. And we need to really, you know, remind people of that and show them the data, which is that there's absolutely no evidence that there's causality between those things. Thank you. We all need to work together. Always. Okay, this next question comes from text. The cash bail system disproportionately impacts persons of color and women. How does it also impact or affect those suffering from mental illness? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that is a wonderful question. Here in Cuyahoga County, the number one identified need that our clients have stated for themselves is mental health. And, and, and let's process that for a minute. Mental health is a medical diagnosis. Yeah. These are individuals that need medical intervention. But instead of giving them that as a solution, we've opted to put them inside of a jail cell. We've opted to put them inside of a harmful condition for even the most healthy person. And then we release them days, weeks, months later, and expect them to be better off. So when we're talking about mental health, we really have to figure out how on the front end those are being identified sooner and that the alternative measures are being implemented in, you know, in exception of incarceration. A question, observation and a question. Your model works because you obviously vet the people that you're providing bail to. And the question has to do with how much of that is dependent on the quality of the people at the local level that you're hiring, and what does the national organization do 
really to support the kinds of things that go on in Cleveland or Kansas City or some of your other. Can you, can you talk about that, that footprint model that you've developed? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I'll start and you, you, you finish if You're you You're the CEO, yeah. you do it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's valid. Um, it, it, it's a great question. And you know, one, my starting point for answering that is our vetting process isn't one of picking and choosing. So when we get a referral, we're actually, the local team is going to schedule an interview. They're going to go meet that person and have a conversation with them one-on-one. -on -one. And in that conversation, we're doing an inventory of where they are in life. Do you have housing? Do you have employment? Do you have mental health needs? Do you have substance use needs? Do you have? And based off of our conversation with them and what their needs are, then we'll take that information and we'll compare that against what resources we have available that we believe would help them successfully be able to reenter and return back to court. And so it's not a vetting process on, oh, we think this person right here is worthy or not worthy. It's more or less our ability to be able to stand in their life as a supportive means to help them succeed. Um, and so that's what the local team does regularly. Now, how do we support the local teams in that area? Like I said, we first and foremost, we hire people who are local. And then we hire people who are already connected and invested in the outcomes of their community members. And so we support them in the sense of uh, facilitation and, and creating opportunity for them to continue building out those resources. And then when we see that we are lacking in a certain area, so let's say that it's wintertime, housing resources are you know, dwindling, shelters are, are at their full capacity, and we have people who for no other reason than being homeless have found themselves in, in, in custody. If we can't help that person because we don't have a bed for them, that's when we work with the local team and our policy team and we start to advocate for more beds to be made available. There's no reason why those beds can't be provided in a different means for those same people who shouldn't be in jail in the first place. Thank you. Yeah. Good afternoon once more. Uh, so last year, I think it was last year that the uh, issue one passed on bail reform. So there was an attempt to rectify this matter. Uh, with issue one, could you please speak towards what you see as some of the great takeaways from it versus those that are create still some challenges as it relates to how this whole process planned out with bail reform? Thank you. Sure. Um, you know, it's easy to, to come from another state and, and, and critique what somebody else has done. So um, I'll do the best I can in, in the way that I know how, but you know, issue one, the basic problem with issue one is that it just further codifies the existence of cash bail. Mm -hmm. It doesn't do anything, right, to get at the heart of what the problem is here. Um, and so while I think it looked like, well, of course, judges should be able to consider public safety. I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? Of course, we think judges should have the discretion to consider public safety. What, what it didn't do, though, was address the real problem, which was you just gave more power to judges to set more money on people, while you then create a dynamic where somebody who might pose a danger, who has a lot of money, gets out, and somebody who doesn't have a lot of money can't, right? Yeah. And so that's the fundamental problem with it. It, didn't, it, did, it just further codified the use of cash bail, um, as opposed to the bipartisan bill that I know was being worked on here in Ohio, mm -hmm. which I thought was a really good effort to eliminate cash bail, create and reimagine a new pretrial system, right, that would 
think about public safety in a new way that didn't involve money and took money out of the equation. Um, unfortunately, that it can go forward, but I'm hopeful that it can. I'm, I'm hopeful that that bipartisan effort can continue. Um, you know, I, th I think the problem with really um, the constitutional amendment was just that it, it continues to codify cash bail. And for all the reasons we said before, it's unnecessary, it's unjust, it's unfair. We have a, a, a Summit County Public Defender at the mic. Hello, Andrea. Hello, hello, how are you? Nice to see you. Um, well, that's a perfect uh, segue into my question. As a public defender in Summit County, where we are regularly seeing low-level misdemeanors um, kept incarcerated on cash bail, uh, how do we get, and that's for you out-of-towners, that's about 40 miles south of where we are right now, fourth largest county in the state. How do we get a bail project in Akron? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Pretty nuts and bolts question, I know. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, here's what I would say. I would say get your friends together and have somebody start um, an effort there. So the bail project, as much as, look, when we first set up the bail project, somebody once asked me at one of these talks, I was talking in front of a bunch of private equity folks, so it's a very different world, and somebody raised their hand and said, well, can't you just get everybody out of jail pre-trial? <laughs> and I was like, sure, if you want to give us about $100 billion, we could do that. Um, but, you know, we have limited resources. We are in probably as many sites as we think we can be in right mm -hmm. now and support. Um, but what I would say is there's nothing stopping, you know, yeah. people that you know and, and people from your own community starting their own bail fund. Um, we'd be happy to provide technical assistance and, and help people figure out how you set that up and how you do that work. Um, I, there I'm offering up your, your work there. I shouldn't be doing that anymore, sorry. Um, but you know, but it, it is, we should inspire people to really do this. Always remembering that a bail fund's not an answer. Right. Yeah. Right? It's not the answer, but it is um, an immediate lifeline for those folks that are stuck in jail while we're proving the bigger point and while we're moving change forward. Um, but yeah, get, get people together and think about, you know, what work can be done in your community and who might be willing to lead it on the ground. Um, and then talk to us, and we'd be happy to, you know, provide any technical assistance we can, and maybe even some bail capital. So we we have a group that spark, that sparked up after the Jalen Walker shooting, mm -hmm. um, and they did a tremendous job of, mm -hmm. of getting people out because our prosecutor was asking for cash bail for every single person arrested in those protests. Um, and you know, these are first-time offenders, fourth-degree misdemeanors, yep. uh, and they wanted cash bail for everybody. So you would work with that group if they wanted to continue. Maybe just give them some guidance. There's Excellent. nobody we won't talk to. Thank yeah. you. Hi. Yes. Uh, so um, I'd like to try to put a finer point on uh, on a question that was asked earlier. Um, right. Uh, as as you I think just said. Right. The bail project in and of itself is very helpful, but it is in some ways a band-aid on the problem, and we're looking for real permanent change. Mm -hmm. um, and in a county where we have some really sort of receptive elected officials, I know that the county government uh, gave a lot of money to the Vale Project, which was well appreciated. Um, <laughs> uh, how do we, um, what can somebody in this room do over the next 12 months in particular that might help move the conversation forward? Is it asking for more transparency? Is it um, engaging in electoralism, what, what is the best way for somebody who is energized from this talk to go forth and, and help out the effort? <laughs> I 
<laughs> it, it, it is a great question, but it's also a complicated one to give a simple, short answer to. Um, so I'd say everything that you just named are all things that need to be done. This isn't going to be a one solution fix. Um, but I do think, you know, something that Robin, you know, named earlier, and that is the public education. In public education, extending that to our city officials, to state government, making sure that people really understand the issue, the impact, and the potential solutions. And then I would add an additional piece. One narrative that is forever silenced are the successes. Let's talk about the thousands of people just locally that are getting released that don't come back to jail that are advancing and moving their lives forward, that are actually making a significant contribution to the communities. And I sit here today as proof, as evidence, as somebody who has been incarcerated, that there is success on the other side. But it took somebody believing in me and providing me an opportunity to succeed to get me here. And along the way, before I even joined the Bell Project, I was in for-profit industry. And I started with a startup company. Their first year that I worked with them, they hit million dollars. When I left, they were a $70 million company. And they were employing well over 150 people. Now stop and think about that. A startup that I had the opportunity to be part of because somebody provided me an opportunity is now not only a successful entity in their industry, but they're also employing so many more people changing so many more lives, and 35% of my team were all system impacted. Eight of the managers for that organization were all system impacted people. So I can say that the success of that organization was built on the backs of. And that's the successes that we need to look at. When we're talking about an economic turn, when we're talking about investment in what we're talking about are human lives that have the potential to come out here and really have a significant mark on our communities. Jerry. Hi, um, I have a question, and I'm not sure if you all can answer, maybe it's some of the legislators in this room. When you suggested that there was a solution in another state where in order to justify a cash bail, the judges had to enter why they uh, uh, mandated a cash bail. Is that something that is done in order to get that policy in place? Is that something that was legislated? Or how, how did that come about? There was, a, there was a settlement in a lawsuit, right? So there was a lawsuit that was brought and it was a settlement that was arrived at by all the people involved in the lawsuit. Um, and it has led to substantial decarceration um, and again, no negative impact on public safety. Rising crime rates, not happening. Um, you know, getting people out more often and decarcerating has actually had a positive impact on community. And I guess to the legislators in the room, is that something that we can legislate at the county and local levels? Absolutely. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Daryl Houston, and I just wanted to share with you guys that it's refreshing to sit here and hear this uh, reform because I was wrongfully in prison. I did 16 years wrongfully in prison. I've been home 15 years now, and this I believe this is long overdue.
And I'm glad that you guys. And I'm glad that you guys are in this room having these conversations. I'm very emotional about it because I'm still trying to put my life together as we speak. And uh, it is refreshing to see all these different nationalities and minds in here trying to come together for a common solution mm -hmm. to a problem that we all deal with every day. Mm -hmm. There's not one individual in here that doesn't deal with this problem, whether it be directly or indirectly. We are all part of society, and we all have to participate in bettering society. And I want to thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, good afternoon. Um, so I have two questions. The first one's really quick. The second one is one that I think you more so would have to speak on. The first question is, Who's your favorite bell disruptor here in Cleveland? <laughs> <laughs> and then, well, we could, we could talk about that later. <laughs> the second question is this, is that one of the things that I found in uh, my work in advocacy is that one of our biggest friends in what we do is lobbying. And so my question is, is there uh, going to be like a sustained effort in lobbying in each and every site and even you know on a federal level that could really help bring about this change because as I said one of the when when we talk about the general public a lot of the people in the general public do not know but you would be surprised at the amount of public officials people that are our elected officials that don't have a clue and when we have that conversation with them then all of a sudden they have an epiphany and we could actually see some change and we but it can't just be that one-off politician we have to really put some sustained effort out so i just wanted to know if the bell project is looking to do a lot more of that i know that some have been happening here in in, uh, in ohio but i'm hoping that we can possibly do more and if there are future efforts thank you yeah it's a it's a great it's a great question and um certainly we do a lot of advocacy as you know and you've been so much a part of kareem and so we thank you for that and your efforts i you know when we talk about lobbying we're a not-for-profit 501c3 and there are lots of rules and regulations that actually define how much lobbying you can do as a 501c3 organization we're very very conscientious about not wanting to step over those rules or violate that so we are going to be limited in how much lobbying per se we can do. We're not limited to how much education we can do, how much of the work we can do on the ground, or how much advocacy we can do. And we certainly partner with other organizations and other people who are able to do that lobbying um, from a different you know, platform. Um, and so we'll continue to do that work you know, together. I, 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 <laughs> you know, we're gonna, t we're gonna talk and confer yeah, and try to figure yeah. out who it is. I, I, I can tell you this <laughs> very quickly though, as a father of five children, None of them are my favorite. <laughs> okay, hi. Um, so as David said, the impact of his stepfather's bail created harms to his family. Um, so I'm wondering, are there focus groups on why bail bonds harm families indirectly as much as the individual directly incarcerated? Mm -hmm. I'm not aware of any. I mean, yeah. I, I think what we would say is focus groups are a 
you know, one mechanism to get feedback, right? And we do focus groups across the country, both with our clients who we have bailed out. We've also done, um, with another organization, we've done, you know, 26,000 interviews of people across this country to try to get a handle on what people think about bail and bail reform and how we can move things forward. Um, you know, all of our clients talk to us about the impact it's had on their family, on their loved ones, on their children, on their partners. Um, and so that's always part of the narrative when we elevate client stories. Um, it almost always involves family members and the impact that it's had on family members and the intergenerational harm that happens when yeah. you hold somebody in jail, which, you know, there's plenty of research and studies on. It's, you know, it's undeniable that holding somebody in jail doesn't just impact the person and their family, but it has an intergenerational impact on the next generation of children coming up and that that's something we all need to be very aware of as we, you know, try to change this system and make it more just and humane. Thank you. Hi, several of you touched on uh, some of this earlier, but I'd like to expand a little bit. So as some of you mentioned, the best way to get people out of jail is prevent them from going in in the first place. This requires a number of different steps, uh, including community solutions, affordable housing, community care, prevention, access to services that prevents reaching a point where one uh, gets into a situation they're likely to encounter law enforcement. Another would be alternative response for people where an armed law enforcement response is not needed. Another would be diversion at all points. And of course, we have a great diversion center that the law enforcement is not using in our community. So there are many separate groups in our community, and a lot of them represented here, and each working separately on a small piece of the puzzle. But none of those is the solution. All of us together are the solution. How do we more effectively unite all these groups? And further, how do we effectively unite all these groups in collaboration with city and county officials to achieve meaningful change in our community? Thank you. I feel like if we knew the answer to that question, we'd live in a different world. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, you're right that every single one of those strategies is important. And of course, we, we don't want to have to exist. I mean, we like to exist on this planet, but the bail project doesn't want to exist. We don't really want to see the need, right? Either whether that's through the elimination of cash bail or whether that's thinking differently about how we respond to social, what are fundamentally social problems without handcuffs and patrol cars and jail cells um, and actually divert people out of the system altogether. Um, I think all of those, those things are important and working together is critical. Um, I think you probably on the ground here in Cleveland know the best way to bring together people to the table better than we do. Um, but I don't know, David, if you have any other thoughts on that. Um, the one thing that I'll say, you know, in addition, that I've seen has been successful across the nation, that is taking the, the funding resources and instead of having people compete for it, having them actually state how they're going to partner how they're going to work with other institutions, how they're going to work with other housing solutions, how, and making the funding about strengthening those ties, strengthening that intercircle of resources that people can go to, and they've created centers where they house multiple providers so that there's a one-stop shop for people to go to versus having them go to one side of town, then go to the other, then go over here, and having to tell their story over and over and over again. So the collaboration of funding and or orienting the service providers in that manner has been really successful. Great, thank you.
welcome home, sir. We're glad you're here with us. Yes. Thank you to founder Robin Steinberg and new CEO David Gasper for joining us at the City Club today. And thank you to Associate Professor of Law Aisha Bell Hardaway for moderating. Today's forum is part of the City Club's Criminal Justice Series, presented in partnership with the Char and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation. The forum is also part of the City Club's Authors in Conversation Series, in partnership with Cuyahoga Arts and Culture, the John P. Murphy Foundation, and the Cuyahoga County Public Library. The City Club is grateful for your continued support. We would also like to welcome guests at tables hosted by the Cleveland Foundation, Cleveland State University College of Law, Jewish Federation of Cleveland, Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, Metro Health Foundation, the Good Community Foundation, the Marshall Project Cleveland, Towards Employment, and United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland, Inc. Thank you all for being here today. On March 24th, the City Club will be welcoming two groundbreaking Cleveland international filmmakers who have spent the last several years filming on the front lines of the war in Ukraine. Check it out. And next Friday, March 31st, the City Club will welcome Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and Dahlia Lit Lithwick, Slate's senior legal correspondent, to discuss their new books and the state of the federal judiciary. You can learn about these forums and others at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you once again to Robin Steinberg, David Gaspar, Aisha Bell Hardaway, and thank you, members and friends of the City Club. I'm Lita Obertaz, and this forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.